This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Welcome to today's Trial Lawyer Nation, brought to you by Law Pods. This is Michael Cowan. Today, I'm here with a great lawyer out of Texas, Maxie Scherer. How are you doing today, Maxie? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm wonderful, actually. This is an incredible day. I'm still basking in the last verdict we got. I finally got a physical copy of my book, a Big Rig Justice Today in my hands, which after five and a half years just feels so awesome. I almost was crying. It was so cool. So I'm just on top of the world today, and I'm happy to be talking to you. Well, I'm happy to be talking to you, and I'm going to get a copy of your book today. I'm very excited to read about what you know. Awesome. And before we just jump in, I always have to remember to thank Law Pods. Law Pods sponsors this podcast, and they're here. We're here live at the Association of Truck Accident Attorneys Symposium in Atlanta, Georgia, and Rob from Law Pods is here. He's makes life so easy for us. He's doing the lighting, the recording. He does the mixing, markets it for us. If you have a podcast and you want to have a podcast, you really ought to think about talking to Law Pods because they make your life easy. So let's jump in and let me talk a little bit about you now. So Maxie, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So I'm from El Paso, Texas. I was born and raised there. I went to college at UMass Boston. And when I was in college, I had my son out there. I was a single mom and had him pretty young. And so I, I did undergrad at UMass Boston. I went to grad school for neuroscience at Harvard and then went back to Texas and got a, a good scholarship at Texas Tech. So my son was three years old at the time when I moved back to Texas. And so, so I went back and he was an honorary law school student himself and uh, finished law school in 2008, went back to El Paso. I was practicing at my dad's firm in El Paso uh, Shirley Gate for 13, 14 years. And in 2022, I started my own firm. And so I've had my own firm for just about, I guess, a year and, and three quarters. I'm coming on two years now. That's awesome. I mean, you've already had some pretty impressive success. I know you had a really nice verdict in El Paso against Swift on a trucking case. Uh, and you've had some other cases that we're going to talk about. Before we get into actual case results, though, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, over the years, you know, you've developed yourself where you can get these big verdicts, you can handle these big cases. What have you done to develop yourself as an attorney so you could develop the skills to do what you do? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think as an attorney, it's called practicing law for a reason, because we're always practicing, we're always learning. And so I go to a lot of these types of conferences like we're at now. We're here live, like you said, at the ATAA Symposium. I've been coming to these since ATAA began, so I've been at the first one, and I've been at every single one since. Oh, wow. I've been involved with AAJ. I, I am an avid learner, so I'm always trying to learn and read. I can't wait to read your book. And I actually am one of the first few women in the country that got board certified in trucking. And so I'm, I'm licensed in Texas and Illinois and New Mexico, but have been involved in quite a few trucking cases over my career, starting at, at the first firm I was with and really developed kind of a keen awareness of the difference between trucking cases and car accident cases, and I wanted to learn more. And so kept studying and studying and learning that there was board certification available, and so I took that. And I think by the time that I took it and, and got my certification, I was the fourth or fifth woman in the country that was board certified. And now there are still just a handful of us, but the number is growing every year, and I love doing this type of work and working with people who inspire me like you. And it's really cool to be in this field. And so I like learning about it all the time. What's it like to balance being a mom and spending the time to develop yourself as a lawyer? That's got to be... 
Something. Yeah, it's something. Uh, I'll tell you right now, I don't have so many challenges because my kid is a third year student at Baylor. Okay. But when I first started, I can give zero advice about me having good work-life balance. I did not. And so when I, I finished law school and went and started as an attorney, he literally kind of had to succumb to whatever, whatever schedule I was dealt with. And so what we would end up doing is I'd wake up in the morning super early. I'd do the carpool ride for all the students kind of to school. And so I'd drop them off at school at 7 or 7.15 in the morning. I'd go into the office and then the other parents would do the afternoon kind of carpool, but they would take them to my office. And so he'd hang out at my office after I was done and we would be there every single night until 10 or 10.30. I would order dinner or yeah, I would have dinner at the office. I had a couch in my office. And my poor kid really didn't have lots of home cooking. He didn't have tons of life balance for us being at home. He kind of grew up in my law firm. Wow. Well, at least you were together. Yeah, we were together. And I'm super close with him. And we bonded all the time. And, you know, he did his homework in my office. And and, and he's an awesome, awesome kid. That's probably the thing I'm definitely the thing I'm most proud of in life is my kid. But, you know, he didn't really get lots of home time. So I'm not a good spokesperson for how to have work-life balance. I think I failed at that. (laughs) Well, he's still doing all right. I just, you know, it's always a challenge. I I don't know. I think the having him there instead of leaving him with someone else is a way to do it. I mean, we all have to find the solution that works for us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And now, uh, now that I have my own practice, you know, we're still busy. It's still busy all the time, but I try to make parent weekend at Baylor. I try to make, he's in a fraternity. So when they have mom's weekend, I get out there and I I try to go to every single thing that I can now. And I did that while he was growing up too. And I think that's important. And, and seriously, like you said, I'm very grateful for the time we spent, although it was in an office rather than in a home, I was with him all the time. And that was amazing. Have you found a way to stop working till 10 o'clock all the time? Oh yes. But, but here's the thing. Now I'm a real serious morning person and I didn't used to be. So I wake up with no alarm at like four in the morning, no alarm, no matter what side of the country I'm in. And so I'm always up. So it's funny, everyone at my office laughs at me because I get a ton of work done before anybody wakes up. So now I don't have the 10, 11, 12 nighttime hours, but I do have the four, five, six, seven morning hours. Okay. Yikes. Yeah. I'm so blessed that I've been able, I used to work crazy hours, but I'm able to delegate and have a good team so I get to have a life again. Uh, It's a good feeling, right? Yeah, you definitely need to build a team of people so you don't have to do that. Although some people just can't help themselves. It's just they're driven. I worked for a lawyer out of Houston that's like that. He just, I mean, he had more money than he could ever spend. Yeah. Tore down his mansion on River Oaks to build a bigger one, you know. (laughs) And, you know, but he just kills himself when he works hard all the time. You know, he'd be texting me from the beach on Cabo about cases and like, Yeah. It's kind of the culture in this practice and you have to fight against it. And I grew up in that culture. My dad is 70 years old and he still goes into work and drives, I think it's 25 miles from his office to his home. Yeah. So he drives about 50 miles every single day and works all the time and works crazy hours. And he had a huge verdict that that paid out a couple years ago. He definitely does not need to be working that much, but he still works more hours than most new attorneys and he's 70 years old. Yeah. You know, and God bless him for doing it. I don't want to do that when I'm 70. I, I do want to work when I'm 70, but I don't want to be working even 40-hour weeks when I'm 70. But, yeah. You know, we each have our own our own path and our own goals. Right, right. So how about the trial skills part? Uh, you know, you go to seminars, you can see lectures. Is there anything you've done to develop your t- skills as a trial lawyer? Yeah, so I've got a background in theater and in psychology, and I think both of those really helped me quite a bit. I've tried a bunch of cases. Um, I've, I've been practicing 15 or so years. I've tried about 60 cases. Awesome. Yeah. And um, I think just getting in there and having that experience. And I really credit my dad's firm for, for that experience because early on, he really had the uh, mentality of sink or swim, go out and do it. And so early on, I just started trying cases and I did everything from slip and fall cases and car wreck cases all the way up to cases that ended up being really big, unexpected verdicts. Yeah. And I think it's just the practice of getting in there and, and you know, overcoming your fears. And I, I really do think that the theater experience helped me a lot. Lately, I've been dabbling here and there in things like psychodrama and jury consultants and things like that. And a lot of the stuff that they're teaching me and I'm, I'm absorbing from them, I remember learning when I was in high school in theater classes and when I was doing plays in college. Well, psychodrama started off originally when uh, Jacob Modenel 
developed it on a stage. They, they used to actually get up on a stage to do the psychodrama. Wow. Um, so there is uh, definitely a, a background there. Yeah. Yeah. There's something, two things that come to mind when I hear that from you. One, I'm so happy to hear someone else has tried a bunch of cases because I keep having lawyers tell me, oh, well, back in your day, you could try a bunch of cases, but now it's, it's impossible to get to trial. It's like, no, it's not. There's lots of cases with crappy offers. Yeah. And they're not that big of a case. You can just go in there and roll up your sleeves and try them. I think we just have to decide that we're willing to try them, that we're willing to not have the best result every time. Right. Uh, and then you get those surprising results. And I think that's how you build your reputation is when you, yeah, you might take, take, it might take three or four trials to get that really good result. But when you get a good result in a trial that nobody else could get or no one else would expect you to get, people's like, wow, well, if you can get that on a slip and fall case, what could you do with a you know, bigger case? Yeah. And you build your way up. So Absolutely. I, I, I feel the same. I think you also set the precedent for your reputation on whether you're going to try cases or not in this type of field, right? And so if they know you're going to settle low or settle quickly, then that sets the standard for future cases. And if they know you're going to go try them and that you're willing to go try the case that maybe other lawyers wouldn't have even accepted and you're putting all of your eggs in that basket and going and bringing in whatever you need to bring in to properly try the case, then that also sets the precedent for future clients. It really does. Mallory and I were talking about a case and, you know, we, it's going to go to trial and we were talking, she was asking me about the budget. Like, does it really make sense to do these things? Like, yes, it does. Because people need to know win, lose or draw. If we're going to try the case, we're going to go all in and they're going to get everything. I don't care if I make money on that one case. This is about, yes, it's the client. We want to get them the best result, but it's also about our entire docket, our entire reputation. So when you go in, you got to go all in. You don't just go, well, we're probably going to lose. We'll just kind of half-ass it. Yeah. Not, not bring a live doctor, not, not hire the expert, not do the exhibits. No, if you're going to try the case, Yeah. If you're going to accept the case, try it. If you're going to accept the case as a trial lawyer, be willing to try it and put the money where your mouth is. And, you know, it may not be the biggest verdict you'll ever get. You may not win. But we have a, I think, obligation when clients come in and we say, we're going to help you. And you've been hurt. And, and, you know, all of us at some point in our life have been hurt. I hurt my knee. And uh, I had to stop running. I was supposed to do a marathon. And I couldn't oh, wow. do the marathon because oh, I, yeah, it sucks. I was supposed to be doing it in like another week in Chicago. And I can't do the marathon because I hurt my knee. But that pain, it doesn't go away, right? It hurts and it, it precludes you from working at times. It precludes you from doing what you love. I can't run. I haven't been able to run. And everyone here at these conferences knows I'd be the person waking up early in the morning and going for runs for a couple miles. And now I'm not doing that. And so if someone comes in and has a slip and fall case and they've just got a, a bum knee or a bum shoulder, to me, and, and if we accept the case, it's not just a bum knee. That's their body part. That's our duty. We're representing them and we do what we need to do to give them the best representation, right? And so when I hear people say the same questions and they say, Should, is it worth it? Should we put the money into it? My answer is always like, absolutely, let's do it. Or don't take the case and let someone else do it. I mean, exactly. that's like, no, I'm, I don't take a lot of the cases I used to try anymore because I'm blessed with better cases and I don't, I can't take time away from a family that lost somebody or paraplegic to go work on a slip and fall case with soft tissue now just because it's not fair to me, it's not fair to the client, and it's not funny anymore. Yeah. But starting off, I mean, you need to do it. And there's something about the repetition. I, I don't know. Was there a number of trials where you felt like things changed for you, like it got more comfortable, it got easier? I don't know that it ever feels easy or comfortable. Okay. Uh, I work super, I'm, I'm, uh, when I'm in trial, I have crazy hours. I'm always working. I'm always studying. I'm always reading. I've got books and files and binders all over the place. And I never really take it for granted. I always feel nervous and, and feel like the, uh, there's a lot of weight on my shoulders and uh, it's worked for me. I don't, uh, for me, I've not ever thought I'm going to go win this. I'm going to go beat this. And so I want to work hard and I stay hungry that way, I think. Yeah, I think the working hard stays. But as far as the, when you're in there and things happening naturally, I think there's something that happens around 50 trials and there's definitely something that happened somewhere after a hundred trials where there is a flow state that's easier to get into. Like you still have to be prepared. You have to yeah. know your stuff. You need to know the file, know the exhibits. But when you're cross-examining people, when you're doing arguments, just there's something about that reputa repetition yeah. uh, that you just, there you get a comfort 
level a natural and naturalness that develops with time, I think. And confidence too, I think. And you know, the other thing I think is how often you go to trial. Because if, if you are in trial, well, let's talk about the pandemic, right? Yeah. COVID time. Even people like you or me who have tried a bunch of cases during COVID when no one was really trying cases, it felt when I went back to trials in the last year, it was kind of like, how do we do this again? You know, you get back in the courtroom and there it's kind of, you know how to do it, right? We know how to try cases. We know we've tried a bunch of them, but I think the repetition is also imperative to keeping that confidence and comfort level up. So I like to go to trial as much as possible. Yeah. Well, you had a, a nice result in a trial against Swift in El Paso. Tell us about that case. Okay, okay. So that Sorry, actually... Sorry, i got to let you brag about your Yeah, let me, Come on. Brag, let me <laughs> brag. It's, I'm going to say one little uh, self-plug thing about bragging here. That was my very first trial with my new firm. Awesome. With my well, that's firm. A way, that's a way to start. Yeah, that's a way to start, right? And so in El Paso, we are a notoriously plaintiff-friendly city. But we don't have uh, a notorious kind of reputation for having big verdicts. And so in this particular case, the, the client, the plaintiff, came in when I, I actually was at my old firm when she came in and I interviewed her. And it was one of the type of cases a lot of lawyers wouldn't want to take. In fact, someone at my old firm rejected it before I got it. And uh, she was working for Swift and she was a transportation worker. She was a truck driver. And she was unloading at a Walmart and a trailer door that was defective fell and hit her on the head. After that happened, they ended up sending her to one of their company-type facilities, and they said, really, she didn't have too many problems. And, and she ended up saying to me, no, I do have problems. I have these issues that are going on. I've started doing things like staring off into space, started shaking, I've started falling to the ground, and I have a little bit of background in, in brain injury. And so ended up trying to get her into a neurologist under the plan, under the company's plan, and they wouldn't do it. And I fought a whole appeal to get her in there. Uh, but the entire time, that case is, it, it finally went to trial this March, but she was hurt six years ago, over six years ago. And the entire time, her company was saying she was lying, she was exaggerating, she needed to get back to work because she didn't go back to work. They fired her. The lawyers on the other side kept, you know, saying this isn't a large case, she's not injured, this is someone lawyering the damages, if anything, and the, the liability is all her fault. And so they, they um, it was one of the cases, like I said, that a lot of lawyers wouldn't have taken. In fact, some lawyers I know didn't take it. And when I ended up leaving and starting my own firm, I talked to her and said, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going out on my own. And she wanted to go with me. And I, she wanted to go with me because we had a good rapport. I kept fighting for her to get the right medical care that she needed. Everyone was calling her a liar. And I was uh, wholeheartedly in support of the fact that she was not. And so we, the highest offer we ever got on that case was $300,000. Her medicals were, I think, about $160,000. We went to trial in March, and they kept saying, yeah, if you prove liability, great, but you're not going to get a big verdict. I know you may win on liability, but you won't get big damages. Of course, you're in El Paso. Of course, you're lawyering the damages. Of course, she's not hurt, they kept saying. And uh, everyone involved in this case is just kind of um, making it up. And so we, we did three mediations. The highest number was ever $300,000. I got involved with um, Robert Collins at kind of right close to trial to see if he'd come help me try it with me. And he, we did some jury consulting and did some mock trials. And um, my friend John Camillus came into town and he handled one of the mock trials that we were doing. And we made some big decisions on how to try the case. He ended up trying the case with us. And we got a $10.65 million verdict. That's it was, incredible. Yeah, it was the first eight-figure verdict in El Paso since the 90s. The last one was my dad's <laughs> in the 90s. And so they kept saying it's not going to happen. And, and it definitely made waves. And rightfully so. She was hurt. And, and calling her a liar, calling her family liars, terminating her, She's a very smart lady who was the breadwinner of her household and now can't do what she used to do and is, is, is super hurt. And so it was a rightful verdict. They appealed it and ended up asking on the appeal for us to go to mediation. And we went to mediation and they ended up resolving it for more than the amount of the verdict. Oh, that is so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm very proud of that verdict. And 
I'm proud of John Camillus. I'm proud of Robert Collins. I'm proud of my team. I'm proud that it was our first verdicts. But more than anything, I'm really thankful that my client is finally able to get some closure because they treated her pretty poorly. That's a hell of a way to start a law firm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I want to ask you some follow-ups. I mean, first of all, we have people in all 50 states listening to this. So you said the driver was an employee of Swift. Uh, why wasn't this case barred by workers' compensation? So in Texas, you do not, uh, an employer does not have to have workers' compensation. It's one of the very few states in this country that has this plan. And so workers uh, don't always have the protection of workers' compensation. So in Texas, an employer can decide to have no insurance or they can uh, decide to have some kind of lesser plan than Texas workers' compensation. In that case, it's considered a non-subscriber case. And so they lose their common law defenses that they would have had. And therefore, any negligence, however slight, binds the company to the entire verdict. So uh, non-subscriber cases are great cases in Texas. Most lawyers in Texas don't know how to handle non-subscriber cases, but should learn because those are really good cases. Any negligence, however slight, subjects the defendant to the full verdict. So if you get a 1% finding on the defendant and you get a $10.65 million verdict like I did, they pay the full $10.65 million. And, that's, and luckily, they didn't have an arbitration agreement like a lot of these companies have where I've tried a couple of arbitration. Not so fun. Not so fun. Not so fun at all. I've got one in arbitration now. We try to fight. I try to fight every arbitration agreement, but Texas law is very hard on that. It so. is. So what was your liability theory? What did Swift do wrong that caused the trailer door to hit her? Yeah, so they were in control of that equipment. They owned the trailer. They maintained the trailer. The trailer was defective. And she had called a couple of different times on perhaps other trailers or perhaps this trailer. So the drivers weren't assigned the same trailer on every trip. They were assigned the same tractor, and they would go pick up a loaded trailer at the uh, facility in Los Lunas, New Mexico. So she went on this the night before this happened to her and picked up a sealed loaded trailer. And when she went to the first Walmart, because she was a dedicated Walmart driver at the time. So she would only transport from the Los Lunas facility to different Walmarts in El Paso. And so she went to the first Walmart in El Paso and had trouble. The door was sticking. Uh, she did not call Swift on that day because on pre previous occasions she had called them multiple times. And what dispatch had told her, although, by the way, Swift disputes this happened, but this was her testimony. Her testimony was that dispatch would tell her, use your force, jam it open. Sounds and, right. Yeah, open it, do everything you can, get that open. And instead, they should have put that out of order. So on, on this particular day, she didn't call it in, but she had been trained by them, use your force, get it open. And she couldn't, so she asked two Walmart workers to help her. So they helped get it open. And then at the second Walmart, the same thing happened. Two Walmart workers helped her jam it open. And they left to go get their dollies that they were going to unload the equipment, not the equipment, the um, produce that she was bringing. And she walked in to get her numbers she needed off the chart, and the door fell on her head. Ouch. Yeah. And it's a bit, it's not just a regular door. I mean, these are 305 pounds landing straight on her head. Ouch. So you talked about, you know, the, you have a company doctor saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You don't have a brain injury. Or if you had one, it, you know, it got better. I guess you have a neuroscience background. How does that help you on that kind of type of case? Oh, completely. So they hired in that, in this case and in all my cases, really, there are tons of experts on the defense side that they hire. And I do, that's my favorite thing to do. I think I was talking about this with you before the show. My favorite thing in the whole, whole world of, of litigation, of trial work that I love to do is defense experts. And especially the neuropsychs, especially the neurologists, the neuroradiologists, because I am a nerd when it comes to brain injury. I read about it all the time. I subscribe to all the journals. I'm friends with a bunch of brain injury doctors. Oh, wow. That's, those are the circles I just get real geeked out to learn about and hang out with and, and learn from and research. And so I don't stop that for my own personal fun and, and personal reasons with a family member that has a brain injury. And so when I am getting ready to take defense expert depositions, I already do all my homework anyways. I learn, learn yeah. all, the, all the stuff that I can hit them with, but particularly in brain injury, because that's, that's near and dear to me. So as far as, you know, you, first of all, when you see a client, because a lot of times, unfortunately, our clients, they go to a doctor, the doctor, like a non-physician takes the history, the doctor spends 
45 to 90 seconds talking to the client. If, you know, and they're thinking about neck, back, they're not doing the kind of detailed exam or spending the time with the people that you need to pick up some of the more subtle things from a, a, a brain injury that can really, while not obvious, can really have a serious lifelong effect on someone's life. What are things you look for, like, to suspect, well, maybe this client's got a brain injury? Yeah, I, that is something that is really frustrating to me too, Michael, and so I'm super glad you brought this up. In the last three weeks alone, I have talked to two different lawyers. They've, they've come to me and said, I know you've got brain injury experience, and let me tell you about this case that I'm on. The, I don't know that they've got a brain injury. They were talking about their clients. Two different lawyers from two different firms, two different cases. And they said, these are kind of the back injury problems they have. But, you know, I heard you talking about brain injury and now I'm thinking maybe something could be there. But they've denied all these problems in front of their doctors and there's nothing in the notes about it. And I said, hey, can I talk to your, your client? I, let's, let's do a Zoom and I'll show you what, what, how to do a, a history and see what's going on with them. And in both of those cases, at both of those, one of them, the lawyer had represented the plaintiff for about three years and the other one for about a year and a half. In both of those cases, after talking through what their symptoms were and what they were going through, the lawyer ended up on both cases talking to me, both lawyers, and said, you know, we didn't even know to ask those questions. Yeah. And, and so thank you for taking the time to do it. And now they're going to go and see their neurologist or whatever, their primary doctor, and give this accurate history of what's going on and see what they are um, diagnosed with. And both of them were diagnosed with traumatic brain injury. So but unfortunately, think, you've got a big gap now with the, yeah. the defense will argue, well, who knows what's happened in that year or three years. Yeah, or it's lawyered. It's made up because right. there's a—but it's not. I think it just re it really depends on taking your time. Yeah. And so when a—, a Somebody comes in and they've been involved in a bad truck crash, for example, and they're telling you they've got headaches or they're telling you that they may have lost consciousness or that it was a real bad hit. Or if you can look at the pictures and know that there might be something there, if there was acceleration, deceleration, I mean, whatever it, it may be, if you can go through and take the history that maybe doctors don't have the time to do. And there are a lot of different symptoms. Once you learn about brain injury, you can ask people about that they don't even know are potentially related to right. a brain injury, right? Like staring off into space could be a form of a seizure. And most people don't know that. And most people don't know that that could be caused from a brain injury. And most people don't know that for a brain injury, you don't even have to have loss of consciousness. Yeah, absolutely not. So, yeah. So it's really just taking the time and kind of getting familiar with the science. Or if you're not, going to do that, have someone that is familiar with the science that will take the time to get a history so that you do justice to whatever the damages may be. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a lot of times like, does someone just seem off when you talk to them? Yeah. Do you have a client that's, someone in the office has talked to the client and the client calls back later that day or the next day saying, you never called me and you know you did, yeah. or they're just really hard to deal with. And then, you know, so they're really hard to deal with. Now, some people just are hard to deal with in life, but you start talking to their friends, their family members, like, this guy's kind of a jerk. Was he a jerk before? I mean, you have to, you put it a little more nicely, but like, yeah. you know, was he always like that? And sometimes like, oh yeah, this guy's always been an a-hole. Okay, well then you got an a-hole. But other times like, no, this, he was a really nice person. He got hurt and now, you know, we have anger management issues. I mean, my partner just did one of a, of a spouse. I mean, they're, they're, they're getting divorced right now. And the defense course wanted to, to depose the spouse because it's this really, really ugly divorce. But this the soon-to-be ex-spouse was like crying, like, no, this is not how she was before the brain injury. It's just, you know, not at all. With, and talk about it. Talk about a credible witness. I mean, when someone is, who's divorcing you at the time says you're hurt, you're probably really hurt. Yeah, and it's brain injury is so incredible because the sequelae and the symptoms that people may suffer, can they don't even have to look like the, the next one, right? They're so different, and it's heartbreaking. And, and I alluded to the fact that I have a family member, I have a niece, that um, suffered pretty serious brain issues. And what the way that she changed has been, has been very noticeable and very heartbreaking for the family, and we're working through it all. But, you know, the way that that affects each and every person is so different, and the way that that affects their family is so different. And it's really just as lawyers about taking the time to see what this impact, right, what this crash, what this accident, whatever the case may be, what, what it's done to them and to their family. So I'm curious because there is a debate in the brain injury lawyer community on, on one issue is what do you think about neuropsychologists? 
I love when the defense has neuropsychologists. Okay. <laughs> That's my favorite thing ever. Um, most but, of the but, neuro... but for a neuropsychologist, for our clients. Yeah, so I make a joke about it because the neuropsychologists, they kind of hate me. Um, I've got a, a reputation of, of doing a very good job against defense neuropsychologists. I have a few neuropsychologists that, that I've used on cases that are really good and really qualified and really good at explaining the issues that the plaintiff's having to the jury. So I think it's case by case. If there's, um, if there's a lot of like neuropsychological effects that can be found on testing and that can be found in the one-on-one conversations, a neuropsychologist may be helpful. Uh, I don't tend to use them on every case, but few and far between, I would say, and uh, occasionally it's really helpful. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. To me, it's helpful just because you have someone, one that will take more time if they're the right if they're the right one, we'll take more time to talk to the clients, especially if they'll, they call them collateral witnesses, but if they will interview other people that knew the, the injured person before and after to talk about the changes. and what, Because so many people that have a brain injury have lack of deficit awareness. So they have problems that they don't realize. Either they're in denial or they just don't realize they have them. So you really need to talk to other people. But I do like, you know, when you have like processing deficits, memory deficits, to have some kind of objective measurement of it. Yeah, definitely. And but the other thing I like and and in my Swift trial is we had almost exclusively treating doctors. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so on the other side, they have to go pay people to come from out of town and they get sometimes thousands of dollars an hour to say the person's not hurt that they don't treat, don't have an obligation to tr- treat right. or say the right thing about. And then if we're in trial and we are showing the jury here are the treating doctors and here are their obligations to their patients. And uh, on the other side of things, you've got people who've made how much money to say they're not hurt? Absolutely. And, the, and I find the defense, they always cheat. They always misrepresent. You know, they'll cite an article. You read the article. It does not say what they say it says. Oh, heck yes. And I love reading the articles that they cite in their papers to look at exclusionary factors. Because a lot of times in brain injury... They'll, they'll cite different papers and say, look, they should have recovered in three to four weeks. But if you look in the fine print in those articles, for example, it may say anyone with a loss of consciousness would be excluded from this finding. Yeah. And so if you have loss of consciousness in your case, you get to throw that at them. You are the doctor and you cited this article that specifically excludes my client. Why? And because they don't read the whole article. Yeah. They, they cherry pick what they want because they don't think we're going to read it. They because in 95% of the cases, they get away with it. Oh, yeah. 95 is conservative. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there is. There is. I've made so much money actually reading the darn articles. Yeah. Yeah, it's just taking the time. You're awesome, Michael. It's just taking the time to do it. Taking the time to read. Taking the time to research who you're going to be talking to and taking the history with the client. So, so I want to go to your Swift case. And one thing I'm curious about is, you know, in a brain injury case, you know, you worry about your client looking too bad, looking too good. What did you do with, as far as how did you present your client at trial? Yeah, that's a good question. And an answer that is probably going to shock a lot of people is that we did not present her at trial. She didn't testify. Why not? So a couple of reasons. Her doctor, both her neurologist and the only expert that we had on this matter, a life care planner, who who evaluated her twice, both testified before the judge and the jury that stress causes her to have seizures. And that her seizures would kind of result in her either having the grand mal seizures where she'd shake and fall to the ground and foam at the mouth, or uh, she would have this type of reaction where she would even urinate on herself. Oh, my gosh. And so the stress of having her at trial or having her testify would be too grand, and the doctors advised against it. So that was the main reason. The other reason is that brain injury is often called an invisible injury. She's real smart. If you look at her, her, her IQ level is very high. She doesn't look like someone who is suffering. She doesn't look like someone who has these problems that are going on, but they are going on. They're going on and she knows it. Her family knows it. Her household knows it. That's her life. But having her walk in as a seemingly perfectly healthy woman is also, is also problematic. But most importantly, it's the doctor's testimony that it would be harmful for her. And so she didn't testify at all? Yeah, because I have a, a brain injury case that, 
you know, when we, it was going really well, better than we thought it would go. And we had a client that depends on the day. I mean, some days she was like out of control. You know, like we had doctors that would just, I can't deal with this woman anymore. We're not going to treat her because she's in our office yelling and screaming at people. And other days she was the sweetest, nicest person that seems really normal. I mean, there's just had to do with, I think with sleep, pain levels, just was she triggered or not. Uh, it wasn't like that before. She was like a charge nurse in a women's oncology unit at a hospital. So she could handle stress very well oh, wow. uh, before she had her, her brain injury. And the case settled over the weekend, like after the first week of trial. And we hadn't called her yet. And I remember talking to Sonia, like, I really, like, it's too late now because we didn't ordire on it. And we didn't have any doctors saying that she shouldn't testify. But I like looking back, like, yeah, we really sh- probably should have, uh, if we had to do this again, probably should have set it up to not have her testify. Because I think, I think having her testify, is, it's too unpredictable. It's almost like a defense exhibit because you don't see the true injury. It's the people around her that see it. It's a tough call. A lot of people thought that I, a lot of people, people who I respect and trust and have a lot of admiration for, thought I was crazy for not calling her to trial. And in fact, in the defense closing argument, it was a huge chunk of their closing argument. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I'm, I've always been too scared to do it. I've thought about, even on some of my back injury cases, I thought, you know, I, what do we gain from calling our client? Yeah, I've really been toying. I just, I need to test it. I, I want to, I know we, we had one, we actually were toying with not calling him and we focus gripped it with and without, and it didn't seem to make a big difference. Like we didn't have like a big number jump when we, when we were focus gripping it without him testifying and explaining he wasn't going to, uh, but then he had this like weird thing where he became this really nice person like the Sunday before trial and testified wonderfully. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, but we weren't expecting that. So yeah. we had no problem calling him. But it's uh, it's interesting. I just I wonder that, you know, I think we should rethink those defaults. Like always like we used to think the client had to be there the whole trial. Now we I don't have the client there that much during trial typically. Then, you know, do we have to call the client? I think that's really a case by case thing. We should be. And I'm, I'm so glad that you had the courage to not listen, like, you know your case more, more than these other people, yeah. to, to not listen to them. Because there's so much social pressure to do what everyone else does, but what everyone else does gets average results. By definition, the average, what the average lawyer does gets average results. And if you want to have extraordinary results, you need to do different things. Wow. I love that. I'm going to be thinking about those last two sentences. <laughs> yeah, I got to write that down somewhere. Right? Yeah, that's good <laughs> stuff. Write it down. <laughs> okay, well... You have another case involving FedEx, uh, not your dad's nine-figure FedEx case, <laughs> but your, one of your FedEx cases that you said it's not your biggest, but it's one you're most proud of. Yeah. Oh, thank you for asking me about that case. So we represented, and this was back with my old firm, so it's not, it's not a case that's actively going on now. It's been resolved. But in El Paso, so El Paso is where I'm from. It's a border city. And the, this case that I'm talking about, we represented 35, maybe 36, what the public would call illegal immigrants, right? And so they were being deported from a facility in Arizona, and these 35 or 36 all men were being driven on a bus from Arizona and being brought to the bridge in El Paso to be deported. The... The contractor that was transporting them ended up getting in a pretty bad crash with a FedEx truck. They rear-ended a FedEx truck that was stopped on the highway. The crash was bad. Uh, These guys were hurt to varying levels of degrees. The driver of the bus was hurt. The co-driver of the bus was hurt. Seats actually came off of the bus. Windows were shattered. The driver and the co-driver were taken immediately to get medical attention And they were put on workers' comp, and they were given all of this medical treatment and the benefits. But these 35 or 36 men were put in another bus, left at the bridge, and deported. And some of them were bleeding. Some of them had teeth that were missing. Um, And so the Mexican consulate, who we were attorneys for, contacted us. And my um, paralegal uh, contacted my dad and me. And my paralegal and my discovery clerk went and we all went and interviewed and got these men signed up and got the medical treatment. They all went to their various different homes throughout Mexico. And we brought a suit against FedEx and against the U.S. government contractor. It was in federal court. And what the defense lawyers in that case ended up doing is they set all of these men for depositions in Texas, in the United States, uh, knowing that they couldn't show up. They They had been deported, right? 
And so they didn't show up. We had advised them that that wasn't going to happen. And after that happened, these defense lawyers filed motions to dismiss and motions for summary judgment because there was no evidence of damages by the plaintiff. We went forward before a wonderful judge in El Paso and talked uh, about the fact that this was this was a scheme. This was a game. Yeah, these were Mexican like, citizens. It's not like they had the power uh-huh. to appear if they wanted to. Exactly. I mean. And so we, we made arrangements. Let's go depose them throughout Mexico. Let's do it via, at the time it was Skype. I didn't yeah. know about Zoom at the time. Let's do it via Skype. And uh, they wouldn't do it. They said they have the right to sit in person and talk to them and watch their body movements. They don't agree to do it via Skype. We said, okay, let's go into the interior of Mexico and depose them. We'll make all the arrangements. Yep. And they didn't do it. So they had testimony and brought articles about their safety, about how it was dangerous for them and they shouldn't be compelled to travel into Mexico, including Juarez, which is a five-minute walk from downtown El Paso. It's right there. It's our town. Juarez and El Paso are the same town, really, where it's a sister community. And so these lawyers who are from El Paso and practicing in El Paso go before the judge and testify about how dangerous it is and they're afraid and they won't go into Mexico, even Juarez. So this judge, this incredible judge, ordered that depositions take place on the border. And so we all did these security clearances. And for a month, Michael, it was really cool. For a month, she ordered the U.S. Customs, where the bridge was, where people would come in, make a room available so that depositions could be there and that our clients could sit on the Mexico side of that building (laughs) with us. And then the other lawyers could sit on the U.S. side of that building. And so it was incredible because my, we ended up we ended up bringing these men from all over Mexico, flying them in. They got medical treatment in Juarez. We brought them to the bridge. Some dropped out of the case, though. A couple of them said, we, we don't know what's happening. We're a little bit scared of this process. We're not trying to right. go to U.S. Customs. And yeah. we, you all deported us, and a, a couple wanted out. But for the most part, all of the clients stayed in and trusted us. And we flew them into Juarez. Uh, some had to take buses, got the medical treatment so that we had a doctor in Juarez that was going to testify and they had an IME that was performed. So it was pretty cool. My office was like a machine. We'd pick up at the airport, take them to the hotel, take them to their doctor's appointment, take them to the quote unquote IME that the defense set up and then bring them over to the bridge to give deposition testimony. And this was like a whole 30 day process. So every day for 30 days, this machine was going on. And uh, at the end of that process, after we got the doctor in Juarez and all these depositions done, that case resolved. And each and every single one of those clients got a settlement uh, that they were happy about. But I'm just really proud of that case because they were treated poorly. Um, Teeth were missing. Blood was, you know, like I said, some of them couldn't walk. They were bleeding and they had real serious injuries and they were just left on the bridge to fend for themselves. That's awful. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were able to do something. Yeah, there are a lot of logistics. I mean, I'm from Brownsville, so, yeah. so we've had a lot of cross-border litigation as well. There's a lot of logistical challenges. You know, you can't necessarily get doctors in Mexico don't, won't necessarily give you medical records. Uh, trying to make sure your clients get decent treatment when they're down there. Getting a doctor to testify. There's a lot of issues. And then, you know, what do you do? Like when your client, when, you're, when the defense won't cooperate and your client cannot cross the border... You know, you can sometimes parole them in if you go and beg, but once they've been deported, it's really tough. Nearly impossible. We, we, yeah. I don't know how we did. My co-counsel just on one, it's awful. We, there was a woman lost two two sons in a truck crash. And even though she'd been deported before, they let her come in to make the funeral arrangements. And uh, But I was surprised. We just figured, what well, doesn't hurt to ask, you know? Yeah. Well, good for you. I'm glad she was able to yeah. do that. How sad. I, I had nothing to do with it I, other than saying, use the word humanitarian parole and, and, and be really nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, good advice. Good but then you've got to make sure when you do that, you're, you, they're on you. You, have to, you are responsible to make sure that they are back in Mexico at the end of this period. And if you, one, I think, I don't know what the consequence is to you. And I know there's some, I don't remember what it is, but the other thing is like, it will, you will never do it again if your person doesn't go back. Oh yeah. You won't get that privilege. Yeah, it is. It is a challenge, but you know, that's part of what we do is represent the people that really need representation. It's a cool honor, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. And it's fun and it does feel good. Well, this is kind of totally outside of, uh, you, but you wanted me to ask you, and I think it's something that's really cool. Your son is also making a name for himself. Yeah. So 
my son, it's, it's, I, I early on told you that's what I'm the most proud of. He's just a very good human. He's a good kid. We moved to Houston when he was um, an incoming junior and he didn't know anybody in Houston and he was really good at music. So he had taught himself to play the guitar and the piano and the drums and all these different instruments. So he, he's always been a very social kid. He's always been very popular. He was invited to a party and he was sitting over at the corner in a party playing the guitar and he's, he'll tell you first, he's super handsome. Uh, and so people were kind of circling around him. And one of the kids who circled around him was a big musician's uh, kid. And so they ended up hearing him play the guitar and saying, hey, we need to get you in the music industry. So they brought him into the studio and he was recording at the studio where a rapper named Travis Scott records. Oh, in wow. Houston. Yeah. And uh, he did one song and it went super TikTok viral. He got dances from famous people. They did a uh, I say he's a great human, but the dance was uh, a little bit vulgar. His songs are a little bit vulgar. It's lots of bad language, but he it got 90 million hits on TikTok. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So even just yesterday, he was he was talking to he was having meetings with record labels and things like that. He's a he's a third year Baylor student, but he is a very successful hip hop musician. And I don't know how he got into hip hop. He was playing uh, the Beatles and playing Nirvana and playing the Eagles music on his guitar. But like I said, he did one song that went TikTok viral and since then has become a rapper. His rap name is Sonoda. Sonoda. Yeah, which is Adonis spelled backwards. I told you he's the first one to say he's handsome. He's uh, That's a very humble name, right? Adonis spelled backwards. <laughs> I never would have thought Baylor in rap. Yeah. <laughs> and they've had him perform at Baylor and they've oh, had wow. him on a couple of different TV shows and things. And I'm like, how is, how is Baylor promoted? Because if you listen to his music, you, you uh, don't want kids around. It's lots of bad language. Yeah. <laughs> Baylor, you know, where they used to kick you out of school, they found out that you, you know, did something they didn't approve of with the opposite sex. Or, yeah. And they're changing or, or he's forced his way in. I don't know what happened there. Awesome. <laughs> well, that, you got to be. That, that's got to be so awesome to see your kids succeed. I yeah. mean, I'm sure your dad feels that way when you go get a verdict. He says so. He says so. And yeah, that's the, there's nothing that brings us more joy than, than that, I think. Watching my kid do anything yeah. is more important than anything I do, but particularly, you know, his success in college and in this music world. And he's just a great person. My oldest son's a freshman in college, and he just told me a few months ago he wanted to go to law school. He always said, no, I'm not, I want to forge my own path. I don't want to be a lawyer. And now he, for the first time, he said, yeah, I think I do want to go to law school. Do you try to convince him to be a lawyer or Hell stay neutral? No, no, no. What I've told him, because he's asked me before, you know, because the way he would ask me, it's like, well, if I, if I would become a lawyer, basically like, will you just give me everything? Oh. And, you know, I'm like, no. Yeah. Good answer. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, really and truly, like, if you want to be a lawyer and you think you'd enjoy it, then do it. And, and I would do everything I can to give you the resources and the connections to give you an opportunity to succeed. But if you I said, everyone I know whose parents push them to be a lawyer that doesn't really have the heart to do it, they are miserable. They miserable. either quit or they get to be alcoholics, drug addicts, just really unpleasant people. So just do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy, yeah. And if you can find something that makes you happy and allows you to have the lifestyle that you're used to, it's a little better. Definitely. Because he's, you know, very spoiled. I said I was a spoiled kid, and now it's like... It's hard. It's hard when there's this wonderful human you created right there. To yeah. Just, yeah, to keep him humble. It's hard. <laughs> yeah, just like... Well, Dad, we went to Scotland last year. I don't want to go two years in a row. It's like, oh, my gosh. What, <laughs> what, I mean, I would have, like, died when I was in high school to be able to go to Europe. I, I know. Like, yeah, can't we go to another continent? I, I mean, I've, only, I've already been to Europe a few times. It's like, what have I done to this kid? But, <laughs> yeah, but it's a good thing. He's going to – I'm excited that your son wants to go to law school, and let's see all of the great things that he can do because I'm – all we want is for our kids to surpass us. And for your kid to surpass you, it's going to be amazing because you've already done so many great things. Yeah, he, you know, he's uh, – he hasn't finished his first semester of college yet, so let's wait and see. Like yeah, I said, we'll wait. We'll give him wants, time. If he wants to do it, I'm, I'm all, all for it. I'm all in. Uh, <laughs> but like I said, it's up. I don't think one of us should force our kids to do like, – I let him pick his college. You know, if, if given his selections, I would have picked a different one. He wouldn't apply where I went. <laughs> you know, this is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Baylor was my last choice for my son, Tristan. Yep. I, was, I was trying to talk him into going to the East Coast. He was born in Boston. He got into some really good schools in Boston. And he said, no, this is my path and this is what I choose. And he's now talking about wanting to go to law school. He'd be good at law school. He'd be, he'd be a good lawyer. But 
But who knows? If you try and force your kids to do anything, it creates tons of resentments. That's what I learned. Whatever, I, when I pushed him, he did the opposite. So when I let go, it's kind of like juries. When you let go, you get what you, you get what you need. I mean, you know, you trust, you let go, you trust people, they do the right thing. When you try to force it because you don't trust them, that's when you get the resistance. Those are beautiful words that I've been hearing pretty recently. Trust the jury. Yeah. Trust the jury. And I think when you're able to do that, when you're able to go on the journey with the jury through the lens of the jury about what this case is about and trust them to do the right thing, that most oftentimes humans will will do that. That has been the biggest change for me, not just in my results at trial, but in the joy I get out of trying a case from going to being a, a stressful experience to being a joyous, wonderful, relaxed, more relaxed experience. It's not that I don't work hard. It's just fun work. It's the difference between like playing a game that you love and doing something that's working hard. Just letting it go. Just letting it go. Wow. It's, uh, but it's taken a lot of therapy, a lot of personal work, a lot of practice. Yeah, that's not easy. And most lawyers have a lot of control issues. So. Yeah. And then I, I have too, but I've really learned that I've, I have given up the illusion of control because I can't control what a jury is going to do anyway. I can't you can't control what a judge is going to do. I can control what I do. Wow. And so I just focus on me and, and let them, just trust them to do the right thing. And if they don't, well, at least, you know, the illusion made me, <laughs> gave me comfort. <laughs> and you gave it a damn yeah, good because, effort. <laughs> because if not, I mean, then you're just, when you don't trust them, you're miserable throughout the trial. That's good advice. Well, Maxi, thank you so much. If someone wants to find you, uh, they, you know, they have a case they want to talk to you about, they have something else. How do you, in the world, how do you find Maxi? Yeah, so my website is www.sharelawfirm.com. S-C-H-E-R-R, www.s-c-h-e-r-r-lawfirm.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for thank having you me. so much for, uh, for coming on and thank you all for listening. I'm just going to shamelessly plug my book. Again, my book, Big Rig Justice, five and a half years of my life, everything I knew about trucking as of about six months ago is out from Trial Guides. Go to trialguides.com. You can order it. Uh, if you like it, if you can give me a five-star review on there, it would really just make my day. I don't make any, any extra money off that, but it just makes me happy. So thank you all so much for joining us today on Trial Lawyer Nation. And Maxie, thank you for coming on. Thank you. And I can't wait to get your book. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You could also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff-lawyer-only content, In live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.